Matthew chapter 21. It is uh, great to have all of our children back together again. And we have Josh here this morning and Annabelle. And so Annabelle will leave on Tuesday. Josh will depart on Friday. So it's good to have that second row full again. This morning we're going to consider a trilogy of parables connected by a common theme. And this is the theme. Judgment on the temple and its officials. Now what we have to do from that then is make application from what Jesus is teaching. In the first parable, and there's three, there's three parables, there is a father with two sons. And at the very beginning of the series, we looked at the structure of parables that are basically a triangle. And there is a master figure and typically two contrasting subordinate figures. And so in the first parable, there is a father with two sons. The first son refuses to obey, but later changes his mind. The second son said he would obey, but doesn't. The question is, who are we in this parable? Which son? That's the clarity of the parable. The second parable, there's a master who owns a vineyard. He cares for it. He leases it out to tenants, but when he, when he sends servants to collect what is his, they beat the servants and they kill them. Then the master reasons, they'll respect my son, so he sends his own son. And the question asked in this parable is, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Can you answer that? Because a lot of what I'm hearing today through popular Christianity is that God is all love and will certainly hold no one accountable. That in the end, we're all going to be in heaven. We need to grapple with that question. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And there's a clear answer. In the third parable, there's a king who gives a wedding feast for his son. Those you would expect to attend the banquet refuse. One goes off to his farm, another goes to his business. And those you would least expect to be invited, attend. And yet, it could could, uh, land on a happy ending, but it doesn't. Because all of a sudden, the king comes out, in a sense, to inspect those gathered at the banquet. And he asks a man that's sitting there without the proper garment, and he says, Friend, how did you end up here? You don't belong. And he's taken out into outer darkness and judged. That's the end of the parable. And the question is, have you accepted your invitation to the wedding feast? And have you accepted it for the right reason? Now let's look at the context just before these three parables, because they all sort of happen in quick succession. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. And when he, that's Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, now remember, that's the religious context. You've, you've You've got architecture, the temple. You've got religious authorities. You have the chief priests and the elders And they ask this question, and there's going to be a theme that runs through this. 
by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So the hostility of the religious establishment against Jesus is increasing. Look at verse 24. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, I also will tell you by what authority, there's that word again, I do these things. The issue is authority. One group thinks they have it, and they are not about to let a carpenter circumvent what they believe is theirs. This religious authority, this religious establishment. Here's the question Jesus asks in return. Look at verse 25. It's the counter question to their trap. He says, the baptism of John, this would be John the Baptist. Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Now, don't miss the question. By whose authority did John baptize? Do you accept John's message as divinely authoritative or not? Now, look at, look at, the, look, look, look what happens. Keep, keep reading in verse 25. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. Interesting confession. We fear men. For they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus. What did they say? We do not know. They hide like the weaklings they are behind a facade of ignorance. Oh, I I don't know. And do you know that excuse will never stand up at the judgment of God? That excuse is inexcusable. We just didn't know. We didn't have enough information. Here they knew, but now they're actually bold-faced lying to this man who was on their turf. And he said to them, look at what Jesus does. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's the setting. A highly esteemed religious structure and its leaders. And here's their question. What do you think you're doing here? And why do you think you're doing it? Their question is a trap. And I love that Jesus doesn't hesitate to trap the trappers. So he responds with a question they will struggle with. You know, there is a side to God that is unpopular, but that, what, that we must grapple with. And it's what some authors have called the dark line down God's face. Not in the sense of that he is evil or sinful, but there is a side to God that has not been taught much. And it's what Proverbs 3.34 says, Toward the scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. James says it this way, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus says, you're not going to shoot straight with me? Then I'm not going to give you the answer to my question. But then he does in three parables. That's the beauty of this, this trilogy of parables. Notice what happens next. Without interruption, Jesus tells a parable that implicitly provides the answer. And this is, what, this is how we're going to see the three parables this morning. God's indictment, God's sentence, God's execution. God's indictment, God's sentence, and God's execution. Let's look at the parable of the two sons. An indictment is a formal charge or accusation. Jesus starts with a question. I love this. So he, remember, he's on their turf. 
And they're the authorities. And he says, what do you think? That's what, look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. He says, what do you think? And then he follows with the most common structure of parables, a master figure with two contrasting subordinates. And it looks like in the parable, you simply have two workers who fail to follow through on their commitments. But there's more that is intended than that. Look at verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. Now, vineyard in two of our parables this morning symbolizes the chosen nation Israel. With her laws to follow and her tasks to accomplish, it's it's Israel and her obedience to her mission. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, or Lord. But what happens? But he did not go. So the first son refuses to obey the father's command, but later obeys. The second son promises obedience, but never acts upon it. Here's the parable. Here's the contrast. It is between those who reject Jesus and those who accept Jesus. Here's Jesus' indictment. Look at verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? Because let me ask you that this morning. We just read through a quick parable. Which of the two sons, the first or the second son, did the will of his father? Which one? And so the Jewish leaders are, are, are asked to indict themselves. So remember, so no, okay, let's take it out of, out of our context. Jesus talking to the religious officials, and he says, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, now listen to this. Truly I say to you, remember who he's talking to. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. On what basis does he say that? For, look at the connecting word in verse 32. I mean, here you have the temple, you have the religious officials, you have their perceived authority, and he says the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you do. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. That's the parable. The first son initially said, no way. But when they heard John's message and now see Jesus' miracles, they change their minds. What do we call that? They repent. And believe in him. The comparison is made. The religious authorities are like the second son who honor with their mouth. They lie. They have no intention of doing the Father's will. And they disobey. Their hearts, contrary to what is seen by their words, by their clothing, by their religious structures, are far from God. The evidence is that they reject John and they reject Jesus. The tax collectors and prostitutes are like the first son who initially refused the message, but later repent and believe. So there are three points in this parable. We're already at the end of the parable. And there's one point per character. Like the father first, 
God commands all people to do His will. What is His will? In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and what? Believe the gospel. Like the father to two sons, God commands all people to carry out his will. And all will be held guilty for not doing so, even if they are hiding under the pretense of religion. Secondly, the first son, like those who initially refuse but later repent, they change their minds, verse 32, and believe, that is to obey. Matthew actually only puts a very fine line, folks, between believing and obeying. Those who believe, those who change their minds and obey, verse 32, the word believe, believe is used three times. You have delayed obedience, but ultimately they turn and confess Jesus as Lord. But some are like the second son who promised to obey, often through surface religion, but their ultimate refusal to obey God's will furnishes evidence that they aren't even his child. So this morning, is it pretend obedience or is it delayed obedience for you? Is it pretend obedience and you're just going to carry that with you to judgment? Or is it there was a point when, when God convicted you and opened your blind eyes and you believed and you changed your mind and you followed Him. Peter asks in 1 Peter 4.17, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? The Gospel is something to be obeyed? Yes. The Father goes to the two sons. Go do My will. Go to the vineyard. John says in 1 John 2.17, And the world is passing away and along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're not used to hearing it that way, are we? Doing the will of God and being saved. And it's not a works-based righteousness, but it is that true faith leads to true works that reflect a changed heart. Okay, this brings us to the second parable. That's the indictment. Which of these two sons? Well, the first. The first did his father's will. Let's look at the next parable, the parable of the vineyard. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Here another parable. Same context. Jesus to the religious authorities in the temple. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. This is a common first century practice where a man would buy a plot of land, he would develop it, he would leave it in charge with those who rented from him, and he would travel. But the field is whose? Is it the tenants? No, the field is the master's. And there was an agreement, apparently, that the fruit that came out, at least part of that fruit, belonged to the owner of that field. Again, the imagery of the vineyard shows up. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to the similarity. This is Yahweh talking about His chosen nation, Israel. He says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning His vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and He looked for it to yield grapes. Isaiah chapter 5. So here's the parable. 
The vineyard represents Israel, whom God planted to do his will. The tenants represent those placed in charge of Israel. Who's in charge of Israel in this context in Matthew 21? The religious authorities. The tenants represent those placed in charge of Israel. But now those tenants reject his servants and reject his son. The fence, the wine press, and the tower, don't miss all that tender care showing God's personal care and protection for his vineyard, Israel. Look at verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Verse 35. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, here's the progression. The servant's fate recalls the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament. God is sending his prophets to preach. And on so many occasions, including Jeremiah, including Isaiah, including Zechariah, they are beat, they are mistreated, and some are killed. Two chapters later in Matthew chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus says this. Listen to what he says. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now again, don't lose the context. Jesus is sitting there on their turf telling the religious officials this parable. And the question is, will the son receive more respect than the other servants? Isaiah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. Look at verse 38 for the answer. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, what happens? The action they propose actually resembles what is about to happen to Jesus. They're going to take him outside of the city of Jerusalem and they're going to kill him, the heir, the son. Here's the question. Look at verse 40. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, when he comes back, what will he do to those tenants? Let me ask you that. Just in our society today, that happens. What is the owner going to do? This is the second question that demands an answer. The first, which of the two did the will of his father? The second... What is the owner of the vineyard going to do? What will the master do to those who rejected his messengers and killed his son? What, will he, what would a father do? This is the judicial sentence. Again, the Jewish leaders have to indict themselves. Look at verse 41. They said to him, now remember, on each occasion they're coming up with the right answer. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Notice the details, not just death, a miserable death. 
Jesus said to them, verse 42, Have you never read in the Scriptures? Don't you love how Jesus asks that? As if the Scriptures are sufficient. As if they're the answer. As if they provide the way. Have you not read? It's a rebuke to the religious officials for not knowing God's Word or at least not obeying God's Word. Have you never read in the Scriptures? Look at what he quotes. He quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a self-reference of Jesus in Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. Peter quotes Psalm 118 in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, after he heals the crippled man and religious officials are questioning Peter for doing what they did. And all Peter says is, this Jesus, by whom this man is standing next to us healed, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. And he, Jesus, has now become the cornerstone. So you've got all this, all this Old Testament prophetic literature coming in together in the parables and in Peter's preaching in Acts. Here's what's beautiful. Israel's rejection of Jesus does not disprove his Messiahship. Our rejection of Jesus does not disprove that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus is speaking, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Do we realize that we do not get to hammer down the gavel in the courtroom of finality? Matter of fact, Jesus even, Jesus, God even knew that the son whom he was going to send would first be dishonored and rejected, but then highly exalted above all names. He knew that. We do not get to say, this is the final verdict. What I reject is rejected and what I accept is accepted. No, Jesus says that he is a stone. Some will believe and find firm ground and the building will be set straight from that cornerstone and others will reject and they will trip over it and be crushed to pieces. The fate of the sun is not the last word in the story. The sun rises again. Craig Blumberg in his commentary on Matthew writes this. Jesus is not so much foreshadowing the shift of God's activity from Jewish to Gentile realms as much as he is anticipating the replacement of Israel by the church, which will unite both Jew and Gentile. Listen to what he says next. Those who have rejected Jesus, for whom the cornerstone has become a stumbling stone, will be broken by him. And even if one does not actively oppose Jesus... Anything less than genuine discipleship will lead to judgment. The stone will fall on and crush such a person. Isn't that what Jesus is teaching? Look at verse 45. This is the reaction. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, his parable, they perceived, I love this, they actually are starting to see a little bit they perceived that he was speaking about them. Hmm. You don't say, right? I mean, we're reading it with 
the luxury of looking back. And they're like, I think he's talking about us. He is. And everyone like you. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now again, here are the points of the parable. Again, one per character. God, like the Master, is patient and long-suffering. Some say too patient. Aren't you glad he's patient? But a day is coming when those who have rejected him will be crushed. That's the wording of the text. Jesus, like the sun, would be cast out and killed, but like the stone, he will not be rejected forever, but will be honored by all and judge those who have opposed him. That's what the text says. Matter of fact, Paul will go on and develop this in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. And he says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. However, sometimes that confession is too late. Because they are now saying that before a judge, a stone that is about to fall and crush. The leaders, like the tenants, portray the choice at hand. Either worship Christ or intensify your efforts to resist him. That brings us to the third parable. The parable of the wedding feast. This provides an overview of salvation history. What that means is God's personal redemptive activity throughout the history of humanity. It is a single story all the way back from Genesis all the way up until our last breath we just took. This is salvation history. God's initiative, his attempts to pursue us. Look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants. Now notice there's going to be three delegations. This is the first delegation. Okay, it's time for my son to get married. We're going to send out a delegation. And he sent his servants, verse 3, to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, if you're just reading this story, this is the king. And he goes out to his citizens who would be expected to be there at the feast. And so on this joyful day, he sends out his servants and they said, it's ready. And they go, nah, no thanks, I'm not interested. The wedding banquet is a metaphor for the kingdom of God and its joys. Invitations have already gone out. How? Through the Old Testament. Through the Old Testament law, through the Old Testament prophets. And they proclaimed the messianic joy of the kingdom. And now that the invitation is going out more personally through John the Baptist and especially through the person of Jesus Christ, those who were saying, oh, we can't wait for the wedding. We can't wait for that feast. We can't wait to celebrate the king's son. Now when John the Baptist and the son show up, they go, hmm, no thank you. Look at verse 4. So a second delegation is sent. Again, he sent other servants to the same citizens. 
saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Come now, the food is ready. It's going to spoil if you don't come right now. This is the invitation. Come. Look at verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The prophets, even Stephen, Matthew was written after Stephen's stoning, treated them shamefully and killed them. Verse 7, of course, if you're reading this story, this is the natural response of the king. Verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Is God just? Yes. First, notice that ordinary activities took precedence over the king's offer. They value ordinary life over loyalty to the king. Does that sound familiar? They value common practice. They value Saturday afternoon outings. They value football games. They value great things that can be enjoyed within the kingdom. But when the king invites you to the banquet of his son, you don't say, I'm busy. Oh, sorry, I made other plans. Others respond by killing the servants. Others respond by taking the prophets and by taking those who are, who are communicators and proclaimers of the truth, the invitation. They kill the invitation bearers. Since an empty banquet hall is not acceptable, a third delegation is sent. Look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So what is what happens? The king extends his offer to who? Anyone. Go out and find them. Go pull them in. Arland Holtgren in his commentary states this. The mission of God through Christ and His church is to all people without regard for their socioeconomic status, their ethnic identity, their religious standing, or their presumed moral condition. No one has problems with going to the good people. It's the bad that are avoided. Judgments are not to be made ahead of time as to who shall be part of the community of faith. Look back at verse 10 again. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Worthiness and unworthiness has to do with response to the king's invitation. Not upon one's own morality. Let me try to explain this. We've had several fellowships at Highlands over the past several years where guests show up. On two of those occasions, we have had a homeless couple show up. Were they members of Highlands? No. Were they known by anyone here? No. Were they here for the announcements? They heard that we're having a fellowship? No. 
But they responded to an open invitation and there they sat at our tables with us and ate a meal. Some of our own members, you would expect to be here, had other plans. Good plans. Out of town, family obligations. Good thing. We're not blaming them for that. This is by way of mere illustration. My point is it's not that different with the kingdom of God. The ones you would expect to be here, the citizens, are missing. The ones you would least expect are enjoying a meal. Do you know that's the kingdom of God? Jesus would teach the kingdom of God is like a king who was throwing a feast for his son and he sent out invitations and the citizens you would expect to show up said, it's really not that important. And the second delegation goes out and they still say, it's really not that important. You know what? I'm not even going to pay attention to this. I'm going to go back to my house. Do what I do. And the king says, well, I'm going to honor my son. We're going to fill the banquet hall anyway. So you go out. Bad and the good. Tell him to come in. And they do. And guess what? They're part of the kingdom of God. Why? Because they responded to the invitation. But there's a complicated twist in the story, and it's not a happy ending. The king comes out to look at the guests, and he notices one individual that's out of place. Look at verse, 20, uh, look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. End of parable. So much for happy endings, right? What is that? The religious officials, this is what's happening. The religious officials, the Pharisees, the, the temple officials, they had, in a sense, prepared themselves for a wedding banquet through the Old Testament. They were masters of the law. They understood the prophecies. They understood the Psalms. In a sense, they are like people who received the early invitation and they said, oh, good, we're going to attend. But the charade of their acceptance, their lack of love and honor for the king, shows up when John the Baptist, a second delegation, comes and preaches. And they said, we don't like this. And then the son himself comes and proclaims, repent and believe. And they say, I've got no time for this. They refused to rejoice in the king's son. They had no wedding garment. They had no righteousness from Christ. And this is true for us. Many people hear the good news. They are called. You've heard the gospel. But only few respond. Many who are in the proximity of religion and even have religious titles hear the good news. But few respond. That's what the text says. Many are called, but few are chosen. Let me just push into that. Who are chosen? Those who say, look at that. I got an invitation to the wedding feast. Are you going? No, I'm too busy. I'm going. 
I'm going to move. I'm going to remove everything out of my schedule and be there. The other one says, yeah, well, maybe I'll go along anyway. And he's the one without a wedding garment. He's the one that's playing the part. Later on, Jesus is going to call them the hypocrites. They'll still play the part even into the wedding feast. But the king knows the king comes out. and He says, friend, how did you get in here? You don't have the right garment on. You're not here for the right reason. Craig Blumberg observes, I'm just going to use his three points to close. From the graciousness and severity of the master, we learn that God generously and consistently invites all kinds of people into his kingdom. But that a day will come when the invitation is rescinded and it is too late to respond. Do you believe that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Secondly, from the excuses of the first group of guests stems the principle that all excuses for rejecting God's invitation are lame. Third, from the helplessness of the second group of guests, right, the ones out in the roads, follows the teaching that God's generosity is not thwarted by the rejection of the establishment because he extends his invitation even to the dispossessed of this world. The religious officials' response is evidence. They have ultimately rejected the invitation and they have rejected Jesus as the Son. So, three parables, three questions, and we're done. Which son did the will of his father? The one who showed delayed obedience, and that doesn't mean you delay it. It simply means there was a, there was a point where we resisted this good news and later we said, I believe. I'm going to obey the second parable, what will the owner of the vineyard do when he returns? He's not passive. He is kind. But do not confuse kindness with weakness. The judge of all the earth will judge. And third, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? That's the question of the third parable. Listen, folks, we are either in Christ or we are outside of Christ. We can, we, there, there are people that love the Scriptures as a literary piece of work, but they have rejected the Lordship of Jesus Christ, whom the Scriptures teach about. How did you get in here? Without a wedding garment? You're out of place. There's no sneaking in another way. There's no, I really, my motives were good. I was sincere. I was there almost every Sunday. How did you get in here? Because if the answer isn't in Christ, all other answers are inexcusable. This is heavy. All three of these parables are heavy. And it takes heaviness to confront the charade of false religion and its authority and its structures. And Jesus pushes into that. And he asks these questions. Do the will of the Father Know that if you mistreat his servants and his son, the owner of the vineyard is going to come back and mistreat you. And third, how did you get in here? Or, and I think this is the majority of us, the rejoices, look at that. I didn't even know I was on the list and I got an invitation. Are you going? You bet I'm going. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. For whoever believes shall be saved. Let's pray.